Hey, I'm Frank Burton from the Ragbag Podcast. I've just published a new novel. It's called 100, and you are going to like it. There was a boy who lived alone in a hundred-story tower block in the dirty city. There was a girl who vomited cash. There was a man who had one of those dreams about having a dream. There was an electrical engineer who was in possession of a rare form of sleepwalking. It's weird, it's wild, it's wonderful, it's in paperback and ebook format on Amazon, but hey, you're audio people. So I've made you an audio book available for name your price that's name your price from frankburton.bandcamp.com that's frankburton.bandcamp.com and i know i'm biased because i wrote it but trust me this is going to Welcome to Ragbag's Bonus Bag. My name's Frank Burton. Here begins a series of Ragbag's best bits from the last 18 months of this marvellous podcast of mine. Let's begin with a compilation of the best stories. Yes, this is the storytelling episode. And then at the end, I'll play a tune that I like very much and I'll talk to you about that too. But first, here's some stories. Tales from Ragbag Land. One time, I was driving home at night, went the wrong way, and partway through a corrected U-turn, I chose a sideways swerve down a randomly selected road. I continued driving, on and on. Every now and then I'd take an unexpected turn, deliberately averting my gaze from the content of the signs. I drove through the night, stopped for a quick sleep in the back seat and carried on driving, not asking myself where I was going, not asking why, just following my instincts. Three days later I'd reached Brighton. The sun was out, the perfect setting for a holiday, but I wanted, I needed, to go home. I hadn't turned up for work. I was living with this girl at the time, who had no idea where I'd disappeared to. My phone battery was long dead and I was afraid to go and pick up a charger. I was better off just driving back home, facing the fact that my relationship was over and my job was probably finished too, unless I could think of a convenient excuse. Was that why I'd suddenly decided to disappear, I wondered? Because I no longer wanted the job, the girlfriend, the life in general. Taking the direct route, I was home within a few hours. She was there when I got back, Heidi, that was her name. All I could manage was, I'm sorry. But I have no real explanation about where I've been or why I went there. I could say I needed time to think, but I deliberately avoided thinking. I suppose I just wanted to disappear for a while. I didn't mean to hurt you in the process. Heidi glanced up from her iPad. She said, I'll be honest, I didn't actually notice you were gone. 
When I was 13, my parents hired a removal van and completely unannounced, we moved house overnight. I woke the next morning in a small triangular room in a cramped triangular bed. A small shaft of light came peeping through my three-sided window. It turned out the entire house was made up of these tiny triangular rooms. Pods, my dad called them. We had to get all new bespoke furniture, triangular chairs, triangular fridge freezer. I said, what are we doing here, Dad? Why have we moved to this weird house? He said, it may seem strange now, but wait. Give it a day or two. Strange will become the new normal. Two nights later, I woke up in my old bed in our old house. Everything had been put back exactly the way it was. I said, what happened to the triangular house? The pods and everything. My parents exchanged a knowing glance before my mother replied, What pods? What triangles? My dad was right about one thing. During the two days I spent in the triangle house, I'd never felt more at home. I didn't feel the need to step into the street, so I've no idea what it looked like from the outside. I picture it as a pyramid. Sometimes I wish I was still there. Years later, shortly after my girlfriend Heidi moved out of the flat we were sharing, I locked myself out. I didn't even have any socks on. I found myself chanting softly. I've lost my keys, I've lost my spouse. Sometimes I wish I was back in my little triangle house lost my shoes, I've lost my spouse. Sometimes I wish I was back in my little triangle house. And so on. A drunken stranger on a train once told me they didn't believe in ghosts or reincarnation as such. But they did believe that when a person's spirit leaves their body, they turn into an airborne disease. And whoever catches them becomes temporarily possessed. He seemed to have a great deal of medical evidence. He could even name studies analysing how even the mildest viral infection can bring about subtle alterations to their host personalities. Oh nonsense obviously, but interesting nonsense, the kind of nonsense I'll happily spend time thinking about, speculating upon. A couple of years after my father's disappearance, I caught a cold and couldn't stop thinking about this crackpot theory. I couldn't stop thinking about my dad, wondering whether he were 
alive or dead? And if he was dead, had I somehow managed to catch him? My dad had always been a different kind of character to me. He liked sports, cars, action movies. I liked music, books and Fellini. So it came as quite a surprise to me that during that cold, I'd never been more similar to my old man. I muttered half-remembered football chants in time to my own footsteps. And as I wandered the streets, I wondered, could it be possible that I'd temporarily contracted my father's spirit? There were plenty of questions I wanted to ask this mystery infection. Why did he feel the need to walk out on his family? Was he happier after he left? Had he found what he was looking for? If so, what was it? But my code didn't speak my language. Did this mean that my father was dead? Not necessarily. The drunken stranger described the transformation process as taking place when a person's spirit leaves their body. If I was indeed possessed by my old man's spirit, could it be the case that he was still out there living his life, wandering around without a soul, without an essence? Anything was possible. As the days progressed, my antibodies fought the infection. With each cough, each sneeze, each blow of the nose, I was exercising my father's macho spirits. Then, one morning, he was gone again. A few weeks later, I ran into the drunken stranger who'd first proposed the theory to me. It was a different train this time. It was morning. The stranger was no longer drunk. He was clean-shaven, dressed in a business suit. He didn't recognise me. So I reminded him how we'd first met. I told him about the code I'd had and how I'd become convinced I'd been possessed by my father's spirit. I said, what do you think of the idea that a person's soul can leave their body before their physical death? Have there been any studies you know of? The stranger glanced from side to side and placed a finger to his lips. said softly this is the quiet coach one time I was at the dentist's having root canal work I was trying to think of things to distract from the discomfort of having a professional poke around the back of my mouth when I noticed through the corner of my eye someone had put a large bowling ball in the corner of the room. Was my dentist one of those bowling enthusiasts who takes her own special ball to the club with her? If that was the case, surely she'd be taking more care of it, not just dumping it in the corner of the room where... She pulls people's teeth out all day. I felt awkward asking after the treatment was complete, so I never found out the answer. 
I was perfectly happy not knowing. But then, so many similar incidents began to occur. I was on a bus. I was the only passenger. For some reason, the entire luggage compartment was full right up to the ceiling with stacks of A4 printer paper. Surely they didn't belong to the driver. He couldn't just use that space to store his stuff. But how could a passenger accidentally leave it there? It must have taken more than one pair of hands to get it there in the first place. I got off the bus, failing to ask once again. It didn't seem an important enough question to distract the driver from his work. Over the course of the next week, a number of other items leapt out at me. There was a giant stuffed bunny looking innocent on top of a set of traffic lights. There was a fridge freezer on display in the window of a jeweler's shop. A car door at the top of a tree. In each of these cases, there may well have been a perfectly logical explanation. But I was growing to suspect that there was a vigilante out there, secretly rearranging the scenery, making some point about the randomness of our interconnected lives. A couple of weeks later, through the window of a different bus, I caught sight of a teenager with a bag of bananas. She was feeding them, one by one, into a red post box. And I thought, was all of this you? The bowling ball, the printer paper, the car door at the top of the tree. You must have had help. Maybe you're part of the movement of outsider artists. Or maybe you don't see yourself as artists. Her eyes met mine, and I smiled like I knew. Teenager just shrugged and continued feeding fruit through the slot. During my brief spell behind bars, I shared a cell with an older gentleman who didn't possess the power of speech, or at least that's how he presented himself. All anyone got from him was a nod or a shake of the head, which I guess explained his nickname, Noddy. Noddy could speak perfectly well, he just chose not to. One night, 17 days into my stay, he suddenly started talking to me. This is my first stretch in prison, he said. I've been here six months, and maybe I'll serve another six. I'm 68 years old and I've been a criminal all my life. This is the first time you got caught, I said. Noddy grunted and affirmative. I got older, he said. Maybe a little too lazy, complacent, something like that. I've always prided myself on never being captured. It's one of the reasons I never speak. Speak, say anything at all, and you give yourself away. Part of yourself is exposed to the listener. And not always the part you intended to reveal. It's also one of the reasons there are no clear pictures of me. 
anyone tries to take my picture, I move, so the shot comes out blurry. There are countless such shots of me, never with a clear capture of my face. I've developed this habit so well over the years that the police had to give up on taking conventional mug shots. They tried taking my picture several times after I was arrested with no luck. Eventually, they took a video and filed a freeze frame of my moving head. If I weren't pretending to be mute, I'd have told them this was a violation of my human rights. I was tempted to claim exemption from being photographed on religious grounds, as I believe photographs capture a person's soul. But come on, I don't actually believe that. And it really wasn't worth speaking up about. So how come you're speaking now, I said. I don't know, said Noddy. You seem like a good listener. And so, starting that night, and continuing for the remainder of my incarceration, Noddy talked and I listened. He told me hundreds of stories. I'll share them with you sometime. This certainly isn't the last you'll hear from Noddy. I've got a feeling this isn't the last that I'll hear from him either. Which is strange, because Noddy's dead now. A while ago I told you about my old cellmate Noddy and the many stories he told me during our time together. I haven't told you any of the stories yet, have I? I'll tell you one now. Noddy started out as a bodyguard. Legit stuff at first, before he moved on to protecting drug lords. He told me about his first proper job after acquiring his security license. He was hired by the managing director of a stationery company. Noddy would spend his days attending sales appointments with his new boss who liked to kick off meetings with the words My name is Victor Hemborg of Hemborg Stationery Supplies and this is my bodyguard. If anyone ever asked him why he needed a bodyguard, Hemborg would smile and say It's a surprisingly cutthroat industry. As you may imagine, Noddy's job was pretty easy. Hemborg never seemed to be in danger or receive unwanted attention for, from anyone at any point. After a few weeks on the job and countless tedious product demonstrations, Noddy said to his boss, I'm curious, Mr. Hamburg. Who do you actually need protection from? Have you got a stalker? Or someone with a vendetta? It would be useful to know so that I can look out for these people. No one's out to get me, said Mr. Hemborg calmly. It's all for show. But why? It's a business investment, okay? I may joke about this being a cutthroat industry, but the fact of the matter is, I'm a small fish in a massive pond. 
If I meet with a potential customer alone, they can smell it on me. Tiny business, struggling to make ends meet. But if I turn up with a bodyguard in tow, now that adds something indefinable. It's worth it too. I've calculated that since I've been using bodyguards, my after-tax profits have increased by £23,000 per year. My salary is £24,000 per year, Noddy pointed out, which means you're pretty much paying for yourself. But this is just the start. I project that next year's profits will have improved by twice that amount. You know what I'm going to do then? Tell me, said Noddy. Mr. Hemborg beamed at him. I'll hire two bodyguards. That very same day, for reasons that have never been explained, two hours after Noddy finished his shift, Victor Hemborg was shot to death in the street. I killed a man once. I was driving in the early morning, half asleep, having just woken ten minutes earlier, and speeding because I was late for work. I closed my eyes, and when I opened them, I was seconds away from colliding with a pedestrian on a zebra crossing. I slammed on the brakes too late. As he struck the front bumper, I came face to face with him, this stranger I was partway through destroying time slowed down. For a second we looked one another in the eye. It was like a freeze frame. The look on his face was strangely apologetic, perhaps an instant response to my own expression of horror. He had the look of a man who knew he was doomed and accepted his fate in the split second he had available to do so. For that small fraction of a moment we gazed into each other's eyes. A real human connection, the likes of which I rarely encountered in day-to-day -day life. A moment later his body was flung into the air. He crash-landed head-first on the concrete. I didn't stop to consider my next move. I put my foot to the floor and drove the hell out of there. Had there been any witnesses? No one I spotted. Cameras? No idea. I'd just have to wait and see if the cops turned up on my doorstep. In the meantime, I had my car crushed and walked to work the following day. I took the same route, returning to the scene of the crime, expecting there to be a sign-up or something with a police appeal for witnesses, some flowers laid out for the guy I'd killed, but there was nothing. I checked the local news. No reports of a hit and run. But there had been a hit and run. I was there. It was me doing the hitting and the running. But what about the person I left behind? He kind of just disappeared. I couldn't stop thinking about his face. It was right there in front of me, superimposed over everything I looked at. I'd have recognised him anywhere. And then, a few weeks later, I did recognise him. He was alive, 
He was shopping. He was walking with a limp. He had a large scar on the side of his head, but he seemed otherwise unharmed. I went right up to him. I went to fling my arms around him and kiss him on the cheek, but he didn't feel appropriate. Hey, I said. Oh, he said, hi. I am so sorry. I know, he said. I thought I'd killed you. He shrugged. You didn't. So what happened? Why didn't you report me? Well, after you drove off, I picked myself up off the street and I took a cab to the hospital. I didn't want to grass you up, so I told them I'd fallen down. Nothing was broken, just lots of bruising. You didn't want to grass me up? It was unforgivable. It was an accident, he said. I saw it in your face, you were tired. And you were on your way to work. It's not like you've been drinking or anything. You got all that just from my facial expression. Well, time kind of slowed down, didn't it? I got a proper good look at you. You're right, yeah, time did slow down, didn't it? Like it would have done in a film or something. We looked at each other, not saying anything for a while. He did it again just now, he said. Time just slowed down again, did you notice that? Yeah, I said. That was weird. After Heidi left, I didn't see anyone for a while. Stayed locked away in my apartment enjoying my own company. Not wallowing or lamenting my loss or anything, just using the breakup as an excuse to have some chill outside. For a month, I only went out for the occasional grocery shop. The only words I exchanged with other people were brief hellos and thank yous at the checkout. My only physical contact with other human beings was the gentle brush of one palm against another when the shop assistant gave me my change. I was fine with all this. I could live without physical contact for a while, I told myself. But as time went on, these brief slips of skin on skin became the highlight of my day. Suddenly this impersonal exchange took on a curiously intimate, tender quality. It didn't matter whose hand it was, male, female, young and old. It was a moment of magic. I started visiting shops more than I needed to. Whenever I wanted to cook a meal, I take a trek across town visiting several shops and buying a different ingredient in each. I ended up with bags of spare change. To get the full benefit of this exercise I needed to hand over the wrong amount of money so that I could receive even more change. That's two hand brushes for the price of one. I suppose you could say I got greedy. There was a girl I liked the look of on one of the supermarket checkouts. I'd already bought things from her several times that week and I was pleased to see she was there again. All I needed was one banana. It was just a few pence but I paid with a note. 
As I handed it over, I reached out and clasped the girl's hand in mine for a moment. She pulled away like she'd been burned. What are you doing? she said. I'm sorry, I said. I don't know what came over me. My girlfriend left me and it, it's not a sexual thing or anything. I, that came out wrong, sorry. I fumbled, putting my hands in my pockets and a shower of coins cascaded onto the floor like a malfunctioning slot machine spraying its jackpot over the tiles. It's really not what it looks like, I said, although to be fair, I'm not entirely sure what it did look like. You never pay my card, do you? said the girl, starting to piece together the evidence. And you only ever buy one thing, a banana, a single spring onion. What's next? I didn't know what to say. And so, I ran away, leaving my money all over the floor. I went home and ate my banana and custard without the banana. My dad used to go fishing on a Sunday. He worked six days a week, long hours as well, so Sundays were my one opportunity to spend any time with him. My mum often hinted that one day he might take me with him on one of his fishing trips. But my dad seemed pretty resistant to the idea. Trust me, he said. You'll be bored out of your mind. It's an old man's game. I was suitably put off by this, but my mum insisted it was important for the two of us to bond. And so, one Sunday, shortly after I turned 12, my dad took me down to the lake. He showed me how to set up the rods and bait the hook. Do you think we're going to catch anything? I said. My dad shook his head. Catching fish is not the point of this exercise for me. What's it about then? I said. He said it's about being still and being silent. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure there even are any fish in this lake. I never catch any anyway. I said, right, so what do we do now? Now, we sit here, my dad said. I sat beside him, staring at the surface of the water. I spy, I said, shh, he said. This is about being still and silent. I sat beside him, examining the patterns in the light ripples below. I thought about how my dad had described fishing as an old man's game, and for the first time in my life I had a real insight into what it might be like to be old. I liked it. I listened to the breeze and I liked it. I embraced the unchanging face of nature. We had no religion, but by the end of the day, I felt like a monk who'd made his peace with the heavens. Having caught nothing as expected, we packed the gear back into the car. I hope that wasn't too disappointing for you, said my dad. 
at least you have an insight into what I get up to on a Sunday. An insight, I said, that's putting it mildly. I feel like I've had an insight into the universe, the silence, the stillness, the pure tranquility of this place. I can't wait until next week. God, are you serious? My dad snapped. Of course. You're supposed to be bored out of your skull, he said. What's wrong with you? Nothing, I said. I feel fantastic. You don't get it, do you? My dad hissed at me. I don't come here for the stillness or the silence or the tranquility. I come here to get away from you. There was a different kind of silence in the car on the way home. I'm sorry, my dad said as we parked up on the driveway and left it at that. My mum's eyes lit up as she saw the two of us arriving home together. Boys, she greeted us. How is your father's unbonding time? Boring, I said. So I had a job once, needed one, money and all that, yeah? Office admin. I'd heard about offices. I'd heard you needed IT skills, which I had. I'd also heard you needed social skills, which wasn't something that came naturally. I'd never set foot in an office before, so it was difficult to predict what sort of things people who work in offices talk about. I'd heard about banter, you know, sharing a laugh and a joke with work colleagues, often at somebody else's expense. But how did you actually do it? What sort of subjects could you joke about and what was off limits? It was like an unseen exam you couldn't revise for because there was no textbook, no clear rules. All I could do was turn up and hope for the best. I was introduced to the admin team. We exchanged names and talked about the weather, small talk, I'd heard of that, yeah. Someone started talking about the X Factor, you know, the TV show, I'd, I'd heard of it, but I'd never seen it, I smiled politely. I'd heard that was the thing to do. There was a coffee break around half ten. I sat with my new colleagues and discussed the relative merits of real sugar versus artificial sweetness. I reached into my pocket for a packet of peanuts I'd brought. Ah, hold your horses there, Frank, someone said. Should have briefed you on this earlier. Um, yeah, we can't have peanuts in here. Susie's got a severe allergy. Susie. She was the one who was rabbiting on about the X Factor earlier on. She looked sheepish. I break out in a rash just from the fumes, she said. Now was my chance to try something out. I bunched my fists over my eyes in a comedy, crying gesture. I said, oh, didums can't eat peanuts. It's like your kryptonite, eh? I could probably bump you off with this stuff. Don't get on the wrong side of me, eh? No one laughed. I tried a different tack. I jeered playfully. 
I can eat peanuts and you can't. You don't know what you're missing, man. These things are heavenly. Ever had a Snickers bar now? King of all chocolate bars. Your friends probably try and reassure you that you're not missing out, but they're just being nice. You are missing out. You're missing out. <laughs> How about peanut butter on toast? My God, if I was banned from eating peanut butter on toast for life, what kind of life would that be? I stopped. I'd become so lost in this train of thought that I had my eyes closed. The silence didn't sound good. I opened my eyes to check my colleagues were still there. They were. Uh, just a bit of bants, I mumbled. Bants! My line manager bellowed at me later in his office after the story had spread. It's short for... I know what it's short for. You had that poor girl in tears. Look, I said, I realise I came off a little too strong. I'm new to all of this, you see. Frank, he said, I'm just going to have to let you go. No, 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 I said, no. I understand, I messed up first day on the job. But, come on, please don't fire me. No, I'm not firing you, he said. I'm letting you go up to the fifth floor. What's that, I said, a promotion? No, not at all. You'll be doing the exact same job, only with a different set of colleagues. Colleagues with something of a different social code. They've got bants. Only it's your kind of bants. It's what Gregory in HR refers to as next level cussing. So, off I trotted. I'd been sitting at my new desk for a minute and a half when a passing executive threw himself onto the desk in front of me, slamming my laptop shut. He grabbed me firmly by the nose and yelled, Look at the conk on this, eh, lads? All right, Pinocchio. Told a few Fibberinos this morning, have we? All right, nosey. How do you get around with this thing attached to your face? You look like a drone's crashed into you. You look like the elephant man's ugly brother. You see what I'm trying to say, pal? You got a big nose. I waited patiently for the fingers to leave my face before delivering my calm retort. And you look like you're on your way to an audition for the role of a young Harold Shipman. There was a moment of silence during which I considered adding you know, the serial killer. The place erupted into a chaos of enthusiastic laughter. Managers darted in from other rooms to offer applause. It's weird, but this felt like the first time in my life a whole community of people had accepted and embraced me. That was the high point. It was a two-week contract. By the time it ended, I was longing to be back downstairs, sharing small talk with the mild-mannered admin staff. I confessed this to the girl who sat next to me on the day I left. I don't know, I'm like Groucho Marx, I suppose, I said. I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have someone like me as a member, you know what I mean? 
You're very much like Groucho Marx, she replied. The crucial difference being, one of you is one of the most successful and beloved figures in the history of popular culture, and the other is a soon-to-be unemployed waste of space. Hey guys, she called over her shoulder. I got a wannabe comedian over here who reckons he's Groucho Marx. Come and throw some eggs at him. For a few days, when I was nine or ten years old, my dad was a suspect in a murder case. Bad luck on his part, wrong place, wrong time, that sort of thing. He was taken in for questioning. The press were having a field day with the gruesome details of the case. And while my dad was being grilled by the cops, there were journalists camped outside our house who'd fire intrusive questions at us whenever we popped outside. My mum decided to keep me off school for the time being. Confined to the house, I started getting really bored. So bored that I took it upon myself to try some home schooling. I'd already figured out what I wanted to do when I grew up. I wanted to be a writer. I was developing a sense that I was the sort of person who perceived the world in ways in which other people did not. I noticed things. So I started writing down some of the things I'd been noticing. Why did dustbins always smell the same, regardless of what was thrown into them? Why did round trees fruit gums stick to your teeth so much? I know these observations weren't destined to win me the Pulitzer, but it was a start. One afternoon, I joined my mum in the living room. She was drinking neat gin and watching a daytime soap opera. There was some kind of dinner party, you see. I looked at my mum's glass and compared it to the glasses in the hands of the fictional characters on screen. I had a kind of eureka moment. I dashed back up to my bedroom and wrote it all down. For the first time, I felt like I'd written something ready-made for an audience. This wasn't just for my own entertainment anymore. But where would I find an audience? I was a 10-year-old boy in the early 1990s. The internet hadn't taken off yet. I needed to seek out some followers in the real world. It wasn't until that evening when I took a peep through the closed blinds and remembered about the gaggle of journalists lurking on the other side of the garden fence. They were pacing around restlessly itching to go home after another wasted afternoon. Now was my chance. I grabbed hold of my notebook, made a couple of last-minute additions and crossings out before venturing out onto the front lawn. I whistled to grab their attention. The journalists turned round, surprised to see me, standing there unsupervised. Have you ever noticed, I called out, You never see anyone drinking white wine on TV. It's always a large measure of red. 
You know why that is? I figured it out. White wine is too transparent. In a certain light, it looks like they're drinking water. And the whole purpose of using a wine glass as a prop in the first place is to provide a convenient visual indicator that the characters are relaxing or enjoying themselves in a social setting. But it's not as simple as that because it still doesn't explain why TV characters drink red wine instead of having a pint of beer, a far more popular beverage in the real world, the absence of which cannot be explained by the white wine principle. A beer glass is immediately identifiable as an alcoholic beverage, but in television land, its main signifier is one of social class. We do see beer being consumed by fictional characters on TV, but only by the working class characters, the lovable ones anyway, you know, salt of the earth types. It's not the tipple of choice for the criminals, the gangsters, the low lives. They're spirit sippers, usually whiskey. The white spirits wouldn't work. Again, they're too transparent. I'd be tempted to say whiskey is used as a symbol of social class too, but that's far from the case. Have you noticed who else drinks whiskey, knocking it back in hefty great swigs at three in the afternoon? Businessmen, the super rich. No red wine for these guys. Too sophisticated, too ladylike. For businessmen and gangsters alike, whiskey is a symbol of strength, of power. It was at that moment that my mother took me gently by the shoulder. I couldn't tell you how long she'd been standing behind me, but clearly she'd heard enough. Inside she said softly but firmly. A guy with a TV camera had been filming the whole thing. But I didn't make it onto the news. The incident went unreported in the papers. Anyway, they caught the guy who did the murder. Nothing to do with my old man. He was released without charge. A couple of weeks later, I received a letter from one of the journalists. His name was Dennis Gleason. He's dead now. But anyway, Dennis wrote, Dear Frank, I'd like you to know that I enjoyed your unexpected monologue. Clearly you're a highly articulate and insightful individual for a person of your age. No doubt you have a fine career as a writer or public speaker ahead of you. In the meantime, keep honing your skills. I would have loved to have turned your observations into some kind of feature, but given the circumstances, this was not deemed to be appropriate. You may be pleased to hear that since hearing your monologue, we've started playing a game in our office called Spot the White, where players score points each time they successfully spot a transparent alcoholic drink being used in a fictional setting. 20 points for vodka, 50 points for white wine. The rules are becoming increasingly specific. Champagne doesn't count. It's the go-to drink for celebration scenes. The score becomes void if the character clearly names the drink. So, for example, 007's Vodka Martini scores nil point. So I suppose I'm writing to thank you for giving us our game. Which has spread to at least four other offices that I know of. 
I wrote back to Dennis, thanking him for the compliment, and included some, in hindsight, dreadful poetry that I composed. It was the start of a long-lasting pen friendship. Until things got a little bit weird. But I'll tell you about that another time. So, on one of those long nights in the cell, I was chatting to Noddy about the end of the world, imagining being the last human being alive, driving around a deserted city just for the sake of using up the last of the fuel. I'll tell you what's weird, he said. I'm pretty sure I'd still be using my indicators. I'd be pausing at stop signs and everything. You know why? Force of habit, I said. Partly, perhaps. But more than that, I'd be obeying the rules of the road in case there's someone else lurking round the corner in the same situation as me. Even if I'd already scoured the streets for days, searching for a live companion. There'd still be the possibility that the last two members of the human race end up joyriding round the streets of the post-apocalypse, and if neither of them are careful, they'll end up dying in a head-on collision. What a way to go. You'd be the same. You'd indicate. You'd look right on roundabouts. I would, I said. But for a different reason, actually. I'd be using my indicators because it would make me feel like I was driving round a regular corner. It would help keep up the pretense that Armageddon didn't happen. I reckon I could keep it up until I'd achieved a state of total blissful denial. I'd never get lonely because I'd be surrounded by an imaginary society. And because my new society is an imaginary one, I can make it a lot nicer, more supportive, and far less likely to destroy itself. That's what the apocalypse holds for me, my friend. Cloud cuckoo land. I was enjoying this riff so much that for a split second, I wondered whether Noddy was simply a character I'd created to keep me sane during solitary confinement. I was, after all, the only person Noddy ever spoke to. Then I remembered how much his snoring kept me awake at night. What should we talk about now, he said. Tell me one of your stories, I said. So, that's what Noddy did. I'll tell you about my first taste of criminal activity, said Noddy. I was a graffiti artist, but not a regular one. I didn't actually break any vandalism laws. I didn't use ink or paint. I used my fingers. I'd sneak out in the early hours of the morning and etch intricate patterns and portraits into the condensation on the city's glass. Windows, doorways, car windscreens, wherever there was a suitable patch of mist. All temporary fixtures, of course. If the weather didn't destroy my masterpieces, a window cleaner soon would. But not before a few sets of eyes had had the opportunity to marvel at them. Some even took pictures. This was in the days before smartphones and social media, when photography was much less casual. A couple of pictures made the papers. 
A surrealist landscape drawn on the side of an office block was used to illustrate the story about the mysterious Glassmaster. That's what they called me. Good name, eh? Yeah, I like it, I said. The other was a self-portrait I'd fingered onto the back of a transit van. This time the newspaper speculated over the identity of the face in the picture. Is this the face of the Glassmaster? The answer was yes, although no one ever positively identified me as the culprit. I was glad about that. It allowed me to continue working undisturbed. And the fun was just beginning. Winter was coming, which gave me a whole new base for my art. Frost. You'd be amazed at what you can achieve with a fingernail on frosted glass. This was the point at which I began to get a proper cult following. Due to the weather conditions, my pictures lasted a little longer and were harder to destroy. Gangs of art enthusiasts would wander the streets on frosty mornings, determined to discover a glass master creation. Many of them did. A few too many. More than was technically possible. Artwork was being discovered in parts of the city I'd never visited. Ah, copycat, I said. You could call her that, I suppose. She may have been inspired by my actions, but I wouldn't call my rival street artist a copycat. For one thing, she was better than me, more technically skilled, and with bolder ideas. She wasn't pretending to be me, either. She signed off each of her pictures, Jill Frost. It was a predictable alias, and perhaps the least original thing about her. It took a couple of weeks, searching around 5am each morning, but eventually I found her, scratching her latest abstract piece into a newsagent's window. I played it cool. Hey Jill, I said. What makes you think that's my name, she replied, not taking her eyes off the ice. It's an alias, at least, I said, like mine, the Glassmaster. Oh, that's you, is it, she said. Yeah, your stuff's all right. Thanks. I said, I suppose the only problem with calling yourself Jill Frost is, what are you going to do in the springtime? I was thinking of taking three seasons off, she said, which is very hard, you know, with very unsociable hours. I'm glad you said that, I said. You prefer not to have a competitor for the rest of the year, she said. It's not that, I said. I'm thinking of giving it up myself. It's really cold out here. Did you want to get some breakfast or something, she said. There's a place around the corner that opens at six. I almost said no. I'm just here to pass on my regards. But I had been searching for two weeks and she did seem like a nice person. So we went for a coffee. We chatted about art and anonymity and our shared admiration for the TV show Blake's Seven. Remember that? No, of course you don't. She was indeed a nice person. We exchanged numbers, but for whatever reason, I never called her and neither did she. Occasionally during the winter months, I'd spot one of her drawings. They always made me smile. Noddy fell asleep. I drifted off myself thinking about his story and our chat about the end of the world. I dreamt about Jill Frost 
the sole survivor of a nuclear event, living in a world plunged into permanent winter, spending her days etching lines into glass. Noddy never told me what she looked like, so my subconscious gave her the face of my ex-girlfriend Heidi. She looked happy. Right, so there's been an awful lot of talking in this episode. To finish off, we'd better play a tune. Over the next few weeks, at the end of each episode, I'll play a tune, I'll introduce it. Let's call this feature Tunes I Should Have Played By Now But Haven't Yet. I wish I could make that into a handy acronym like dodecahedron or something, but if you put all the first letters together, it's just complete gibberish. What the hell? Let's just call it the dodecahedron feature. I like that word. I do. And I like this tune. Good Old Shoe by Patchwork on the Blues. I've liked it for a very long time. It's actually featured on the first album I ever downloaded from the Internet Archive, aka archive.org. And if you're one of those people who pays attention to the links I put in the show notes, you'll already be aware that a lot of the music I play on Ragbag comes from net labels whose music is available free of charge from the Internet Archive. I urge you to check out some of these labels for yourself. But first, take a listen to this. Here we are. 
Thank you for listening. Another bonus bag will be released at some point next week. In the meantime, buy my books, A History of Sarcasm and 100. Check out my website, frankburton.co.uk. And if you're wondering what I'm doing right now while Ragbag's on a break, I'm doing some more creative stuff, right? To be announced very soon. Watch out for it. New projects, new stuff. It's all going very, very well. Podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Britpod Scene on Twitter to find out more. Oh.